So reading from verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she saw, sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs will take from my hand 
that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Thanks, Athel. It's good to be with you all again. Uh, My family and I have worshipped with you guys a number of times, but it's been a few months, so if you don't know who I am or remember me, that's okay. Uh, Thank you for welcoming us back. As Athel mentioned, you have been working your way through the story of the account of the life of Abraham through most of the autumn, and I believe you left off in November for Advent, and so maybe a little reorientation to what has come before would be helpful, and it's probably an appropriate time of year to do that, because I think for all of us, in some ways, that first week of January, we're we're rising out of the fog and haze of the holidays, and we need to recalibrate ourselves back into life. You've had, hopefully, a very Merry Christmas, uh, celebrating Hogmanay, good friends, food, and family, but now, as the fireworks over the castle fade, it's time to settle back in and remind ourselves where we are, what we're doing. And it's important to do that in life, but in this chapter as well, because what we just read, chapter 21 is a crucial moment, a crucial stage in the ongoing fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. But all three of these episodes that we've looked at are built on the scaffolding of what has come before in this story of Abraham, going back to Genesis 12. All of these sections of what we have read and are looking at assume some knowledge of previous events. So let's remind ourselves just broadly of the life and the story of Abraham that you have been looking at. It is a story at the the same time of both mercy and mess. On the one hand, you have the mercy and grace of God to Abraham and his family for no other reason then that God is gracious and he set his love and his favor on them. God promises to richly bless Abraham and his family, particularly two ways that we're going to see carry out through the Old Testament. Uh, The promise of a family, an inheritance for Abraham and Sarah, and the promise of a land for them to have. And God says that he is going to bless them in these ways and that the blessings are going to be abundant so that they they roll on down the hill to other people as well. But on the other hand, we also see that while Abraham responds in faith to God, he continues to be a bit of a mess. And not just Abraham, but his whole family, Abraham and Lot and Sarah, there's a sense that they can't get out of their own way. And it's a funny thing because most people uh, and and most, uh, some major world religions would look at Abraham and say, well, there is the model, right? There is the man of obedient, faithful living. But as you know, if you've been going through this series, if you read Genesis, the reality is something entirely different. Over and over again, from Genesis 12 to Genesis 21, and continuing on after this, we see this repeated pattern of Abraham's failure. 
of Lot's failure, of Sarah's sin and mess. They can't stop sinning, and yet God continues to shower his grace and his favor upon Abraham and his family. And that background is really important because, as I mentioned, chapter 21 is highlighting the faithfulness of God to his gracious promises. We see in some ways the flowering of God's promises to Abraham and Sarah happening in Genesis 21 with the birth of Isaac. But it's done on the backdrop of sin and failure by Abraham. And that's important for us to understand because we cannot taste the richness of this text for us today if we don't also feel the bitterness of what has come before. And that ultimately is what I want us to to leave here knowing and seeing and believing and feeling that God's grace, his free unearned favor and blessing is freely given, is freely offered to you, but it's offered and felt most richly if you also know your failure if you also know your sin, the way that we taste and experience the richness of his grace is if we first feel the depth of our brokenness and our need for it. And that's what this chapter assumes that you know about Abraham and Sarah and their family. That we ought to be at the same time unsettled and filled with wonder that God would choose to be faithful to people like Abraham and Sarah and you and me. And yet that's exactly what God shows us and tells us in his word and in the world. So let's start to look at what we've read and we'll look at some parts more in depth than others. There's a lot of detail here. We've only got a certain amount of time. Um, But beginning with the birth of Isaac and Sarah's joy, look again at verses one through four. We see that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore a son uh, and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. You see the emphasis that's being placed here. There's God's faithfulness to what he had said. Sarah bore a child, was visited by God as he had said. It's almost humorous how much emphasis is being put on this in the text. Like someone saying, you thought this wasn't going to happen, but here we are. Isaac is born. And of course, the background is that at times... Abraham and Sarah didn't think that this was going to happen, right? They had lost faith at times in the promises of God. Uh, Almost every scholar agrees that the birth of Isaac takes place around 25 years after the initial promise to Abraham that he was going to have a son, that he and Sarah were going to have a son together. And in that time, We uh, know if you've read this story, Sarah had despaired about this actually happening. She had tried to take it into her own hands and given uh, Hagar, her uh, slave helper, uh, to, to Abraham. And they had Ishmael. Both Abraham and Sarah at different points had laughed in the face of God, literally laughed and mocked God to his face when he had reminded them, I'm going to do this to you. But all the while, God's response was to graciously assure them that he is faithful, that he promises to be faithful to 
what he has guaranteed to fulfill his promises. In the face of their repeated unfaithfulness over this 25 years, God's promise and his assurance doesn't waver. He's a different kind of father than you or I. Certainly a different kind of father than me. I found myself making a promise uh, that I was immediately regretting on January 1st. January 1st, this past uh, Monday, I think, was a beautiful day. So my wife and I, we took the kids down with apparently the rest of the city to Portobello Beach. Uh, It was absolutely slammed, uh, but it was a beautiful day. We wanted to be out. Um, Father-in-law was in town, so we went and showed him that. And you may know better than we did what we were walking into in that scene where lots of people were running in for what we call a polar bear plunge. Uh, a cold weather swim to start off the new year. We were walking along the beach seeing families, even kids down to three or four years old going in. And uh, we were kind of laughing at them a little bit. And I was trying to encourage my six-year-old son to, you know, hey, why don't you go in? It'll be great. You'll love it. Knowing that he wouldn't go in and probably never would. Um, But he said, well, dad, what if we go tomorrow? And I said, sure. No problem. Let's do it. Let's kind of embrace where we're at and do a a polar bear plunge tomorrow. Thinking he would forget, as most six-year-olds do, most of what we've talked about. Parents, don't you find it amazing? The things that your kids hold on to that you don't want them to remember, and then they can't remember the important things that you want them to remember. Well, Everett, my son, woke up the next morning, and the first thing that he was talking about was, I can't wait to go down to go swim today. And all through the day, I kept waiting for it to go away. But lo and behold, January 2nd, I found myself back at the beach in my swim trunks with my son running into the ocean. It was not fun. I had wavered on that promise. I wanted it to go away. I was ready to throw away that one day promise. But God is a different type of father than I am. What he says is never in question. The grace that God offers to you and me is never duplicitous. It's never uh, kind of backhanded where he's ready to take it away from you. It's based on his oaths to himself. And when you realize that, when when you see that the grace offered can never be taken away, the result is that you begin to have joy that you're transformed by the reality of how good God is and what he offers and provides. This is certainly what's true of Sarah. Read in verse six that her response to the fulfillment of this promise, this miraculous, gracious birth is laughter. It's deep joy. She says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now the laughter of Sarah here is meant to stand in stark contrast to the mocking laughter in chapter 18, when God had visited her and said, she's going to have a child and she laughed and mocked God to his face. But now as she not just knows about and hears about the grace of God, but experiences it for herself, it transforms her. She's full of joy, genuine joy and praise. And she recognizes where that joy has come from. She says, God has made laughter for me. He is the one who has provided this. 
Look at what he has done on my behalf. She's filled with wonder and joy at the miraculous birth of her son. And it was miraculous for her to have a child when she's 97, 98, Abraham's 100. It is a, it is a truly a miraculous thing. But of course, Isaac is just a hint of a more miraculous birth of a son. It's not in Isaac that the promises, the ultimate promises that God had given to Abraham and his family would be fulfilled. But in Jesus, Isaac is a son of promise, but he's not the son of promise. The one who had been promised back in Genesis 3.15. The, the promised coming Messiah. But unlike Sarah, you and I live in the light and the knowledge of the true son of Abraham. The one who wasn't spared as a sacrifice so we're going to, you'll look at next week, but who was given, offered as a sacrifice to ransom sinners. And that's not just something we need to remember. That's not just something that we read about and hear about. Like Sarah heard about the coming uh, birth of her child, but she was actually able to experience it. And we experience the mercy of God in the person of Jesus just as real as Sarah experiencing the birth of her son and in an even greater way. And so I wonder, in light of that, how often do you and I laugh for joy and revel in what God has done for you by grace? I mean, have you ever actually been so full of laughter and joy just thinking about what God has given you in the person and the work of Jesus? I'm not sure if I have. Or is, is our attitude more likely to be something like, oh, it's no big deal. He kind of owes me that. I've been pretty good. I haven't messed up too much. No, he owes you nothing. But he's given you everything. And it's not just something that we read about in scripture, but it's something that breaks into our life. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in a letter to one of his friends that joy is the serious business of heaven. That God doesn't bring dullness or lessening of joy. But he brings the joy of giving what we've always longed for in himself. That's why the biblical writers talk about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of all wisdom. That fear is awe and wonder for who God is and what he has done for us. And we say, look at the God who rescues us, who redeems and restores even such a wretch as me. But of course, it doesn't take long, uh, even though things seem pretty good in the first few verses, this first section of chapter 21, it doesn't take long to see that the birth of Isaac doesn't solve everything for this family. It's probably about two or three years later that we run into the next set of problems that we see starting in verse eight. Um, it was customary at the time for uh, a child, once it was weaned, to you, you threw a big party. Uh, you're celebrating uh, the child kind of growing out of that first dangerous stage of life. And so Abraham, as his custom, is, is throwing a party. And uh, we're not sure why. The Hebrew is not entirely clear. But we see in verse 9 that Ishmael, uh, Sarah sees Ishmael laughing at Isaac. And the, the text indicates that it's kind of laughing and mocking Isaac. And Ishmael is a bit older. He's 15 or 16 years old at this time. He's laughing at his half-brother. And again, we're not sure why, but it brings to head this rumbling issue that's been going on uh, in this family. 
the ongoing fact of Sarah and Abraham's previous sin, the question of who is the heir, who is going to gain the inheritance from Abraham. And of course, the background, as we mentioned, is, is rooted in this lack of faith that happened in God's promises where Sarah had tried, uh, despite what God said about her and Abraham having children, Sarah had despaired of that. She'd grown bitter and she tried to manufacture God's grace in her life. She tried to, to make, to take this promise of God and, and take it on her own and make this family. But the, the after effect of that was that Sarah began to despise Hagar. She treated her poorly. She abused her and beat her. And so Hagar ran away. And in that place, God met Hagar and he graciously promised to protect her and her son. And he promised to make an ish, a, a nation out of Ishmael's line as well, which he reaffirms. So Hagar goes back to the camp and lives with them for the last decade and a half. But this problem doesn't go away and it resurfaces. Sarah's bitterness uh, towards her resurfaces here. She wants her and Ishmael gone, we see in verse 10, to cast them out. And Abraham, as you might suspect, is upset by this. But surprisingly, I think for me, it's a bit of a shock what God says to Abraham after that. Where God instructs Abraham to do what he says, or what she says in verses 12 and 13. God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Now on the surface, that, that's a confusing response by God. I think we can all agree that Sarah's actions and the motives for what she wants uh, for Hagar and, and Ishmael are uh, mixed at best. She's struggling with this historic bitterness towards Hagar and Ishmael. She wants to selfishly secure the future for her own son at the cost of casting out uh, Abraham's other son. And in fact, she probably knows that in asking for them to be cast out, it would have been almost certain death for Hagar and Ishmael because this is one of the, the most, this is in the Negev, which is an incredibly dry and arid part of the desert. But she doesn't care. She wants them gone. So why does God say to Abraham, go and do what Sarah is asking? I think it's important to, to recognize that someone can have bad motives like Sarah does and still end up uh, in, in uh, giving the right advice, even if there are bad motives. Sarah's motives, of course, are bad uh, but she ends up uh, doing or, or asking for what God is blessing. Why? God's response shows that he has different motivation. He's not motivated by the callousness uh, that Sarah has. Sarah is motivated by this bitterness and contempt, but God is motivated by a faithfulness to the two promises of grace that he has made to these boys. And this, I think this is the amazing part, that try as they might, and they have tried a number of times, Abraham and Sarah can't mess up God's faithful purposes. They can't undermine God's ultimate plan. Because see, on the one hand, God has promised 
he is given an assurance that he is going to care for, to preserve and to prosper Ishmael and to build him up. He gave that promise to Hagar uh, a number of years ago, and he's reaffirming it here. So he's saying, I'm not letting that go. I will prosper and preserve them. But more centrally, what God is doing is he's continuing to work out and preserve his greater plan of redemption. Look again at verse 12. God says, whatever Sarah asks, do it. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. There are two things happening here, right? God is is reinforcing, he's reaffirming his original promise to Abraham. that, That he is going to bless Abraham. And through Abraham, he will bless the world. And that hasn't changed. But God's also saying that the one who is going to bring that blessing ultimately is going to come through Isaac's line. The offspring mentioned by God here isn't multiple offspring. It's not multiple generations, but it's a single uh, person. The, The Hebrew is a single masculine noun. There is one offspring and he is going to come through Isaac's line. And of course, that one offspring being referenced is Jesus. So God is saying, I have a plan to rescue the lost. And through Isaac is the rescuer going to come. And I will not let you mess that up. But unlike Sarah, I'm not callous towards those who are suffering and crying out. I care for them as well. And of course, we see that, right? Uh, We see that um, Abraham sends uh, Hagar and Ishmael out. And again, question marks. I'm not sure that a piece of bread and a sack of water is uh, necessarily sufficient provision. Abraham was a very wealthy man. He had lots of things, but he sends them out with a piece of bread and some water. Um, but God is still able to care for them. We see that they, they, it's not too long before they run out of supplies. They're struggling. They're suffering. They're on the brink of death and they cry out and God hears their cries and preserves them. He's faithful to his promises to them. He doesn't let them go. So even though Sarah's motives uh, were, were callous and bitter, God's are not. And he is accomplishing his purposes. Now, what, what does this teach us? Right? Why should we go away changed and challenged by this? Well, for one, we, we need to see, we need to be reminded that we're usually, very rarely, but usually not able to see the broader picture of what God is doing. We are not him. We see this repeatedly that he sovereignly works things out for his good purposes. We have the benefit of going back to his word in places like this and see, okay, well, this is what he was doing. This is part of the broader plan of God's redemption. But often in our circumstances, we don't have that benefit. When things are difficult, our reaction can often be to throw up our hands and say, you know what? He, He has forgotten me. But the theme of the chapter is God's faithfulness. And we see this again over and over. He brings joy to Sarah. He is with Abraham in all that he does. He saw and he heard Ishmael. These are are echoes back to the promises that he has made. Where God says, I am going to be with you. I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to, to preserve Hagar and Ishmael and build him up into a nation as well. God is faithful to his promises. And so we need to see that we aren't just noticed by God, 
but he sees us, he hears us, he enters in. And the reason that he can see us and hear us and love us and puts his grace on us is because at the cross, he turned his face away from Jesus. He forsook his son so that we might be drawn in and cared for in a unique and special way. So we need to taste the love and the pain of the cross again to remind ourselves that God deeply cares for you. But also Paul picks up on these events in Galatians 4 in a really interesting way. And we don't have time to read it, but I'd encourage you to go read this later. Uh, But he picks up this series of events between Isaac and Ishmael to challenge the church, the, the Galatian church, to know that because of God's grace to you and the person and the work of Jesus, you've been set free from the bondage of sin and the weight of the law. Paul says that, These two sons and the nations that grow out of them uh, are like two different covenants, two different relationships. And on the one hand, you have the covenant of bondage to the law, the continuing uh, uh, strapping yourself to the law of trying to do it yourself to earn your merit to God. and, And this is represented in Ishmael because Ishmael was born of Sarah and Abraham trying to, to bring about God's work by themselves to accomplish it on their own. They thought that they could manufacture God's grace, but their attempts failed and it led to more pain. But in Isaac, what we see is that he is the product of the miracle of God's grace brought about by God himself. Through him comes the promised one who reconciles the people to God, the people of faith to God. And so Paul is saying that if you believe and you trust in God for your salvation, you cannot go back to living in a way that tries to earn your merit and your status before God. Because you've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the domain of light. You've been brought completely out of this one line and brought into the promised family. And the way that that happens is grace. It's not something that you can manufacture yourself, but it is God's work for you, born of his promises and secured by Christ and applied by his spirit. And if you don't know of this particular redeeming grace, if you don't, if you're not sure if that's true of you, if you haven't personally experienced God's love in your life, then I want you to see a couple of things. And this is brief and where we'll kind of finish out the chapter and we'll include Abimelech in here a little bit. Um, But the first thing I want you to see is that God is still showing you mercy right now. He's showing you and I mercy by not giving us immediately what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. But God is patient and he still shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. None of us deserve it, but he still shows mercy. There's no indication from this text or from the rest of scripture that Ishmael and Hagar became people of faith, that they trusted God. In fact, the Ishmaelites are referenced at various times in the Old Testament, usually in opposition to Israel. And yet God uniquely saw them and heard them and cared for them. In the last part of the chapter where Abraham is treating with Abimelech and making a covenant, there's no indication that Abimelech worshiped the Lord. 
And yet Abraham covenanted with him. He entered into this relationship with him. And Abimelech was blessed as well. This is what we call God's common grace. A grace that is shown to the whole world. That his goodness, his truth, and his beauty can be seen in all aspects of life. That we all benefit from him, whether or not we recognize it. That, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, God sends his sunshine and rain on the just and the unjust alike. There is a common grace that God employs to the world. Hagar and Ishmael move in a completely different direction from the line of promise. Abimelech, uh, it's subtle in the text, but there is kind of a manipulation about Abimelech happening, trying to enter into a covenant because he sees uh, the blessings that God has given to Abraham and he's trying to partner with that. But each one does benefit from this common grace that God gives to them. So know that you are a recipient of God's mercy right now, but as Paul points out, there is still a line of promise and a line of bondage to sin and death. Paul says in Romans 2 that we we can't forsake or we can't mistake God's kindness and his patience with thinking that we don't also need a deeper rescue and redemption. Because, as he says, his kindness is meant to draw you to repentance. Paul says in another place that God, uh, he's patient towards you. He's not slow to fulfill his promises, but he's patient. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. But he longs to see people repent. So if you don't, if you haven't experienced this grace of God, then know that you're still receiving a kind of grace but you need his redemption. You need to come under the blood of the cross. The people that God is showering his grace and his favor on in the Abrahamic story don't deserve it. You and I don't deserve it. That's exactly why it's grace, but we need it. All of us need it and we need it every day because that initial offer of grace that God gave to Abraham, his blessing of promise in Genesis 12, was just the beginning of the story. God had to reaffirm it over and over. As Abraham failed and messed up, God says, my grace is greater still. This is the love that he has for us. Let me pray. Father God, um, it, it is a humbling thing to look at and examine and evaluate our lives honestly um, without uh, trying to cover up. But you know us. You see what we're really like. And you still have extended the grace and the love and the mercy uh, to redeem us and restore us back into relationship. So Lord, I, I pray that we would first of all know that if we don't know that, if we haven't experienced your love, that you would uh, bring that into our life, apply that to our hearts by your spirit. But also, Lord, uh, I pray that we would remember your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Your love for us uh, never changes even though our circumstances change and it can be hard to see uh, in, in some of the mess of our daily life and our sin. 
But Lord, you never waver in your faithfulness to your promises to rescue and restore and redeem your people. So help us to remember that, to rest in that, and to share the hope of that uh, to those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.